0: Hi, I'm excited about this episode. Our guest is Richard D. Wolfe, who is a professor emeritus of economics, I've never said that, emeritus of economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and has taught many other places. His um, resume is extremely robust, too long to say, but he is most recently the author of Democracy at Work, A Cure for Capitalism, and understanding socialism. Um, I have a special connection to him through his daughter who was a yoga student of mine. And he's hot because a socialist older man with a pedigree is my kind of guy.
1: All right, let's give him a call. Hello?
0: Hi, Rick.
2: Hi, how
0: are you, Alex? Hi, it's so nice to hear your voice. It's such a great honor to have you on our show. I was, Tess, your daughter, who I know because she was a yoga student of mine, told me it was okay to call you Rick. Is that really okay? Absolutely. Okay, good. And there was a moment where Nick, my husband, who you'll soon hear from, thought that I was saying Wick, W-I-C-K, and we were laughing really hard that if the whole show he called you Wick.
1: (laughs) Great, now you've you've spilled the beans.
0: (laughs) Um, So, yeah, Nick, my husband, has always known about your work, and I, being less educated than him, um, know you first through your daughter, who was such a great yoga student, and in those days it was pre-Instagram, and since then I've sort of become this micro-Instagram influencer, so I I use satire to explore the way the wellness industry has internalized America's neoliberal agenda, at least that's what I call it. And since there's, you know, as you well know, systemic racism inherently built in to neoliberalism, it's also built into the neo-spiritualist language, I call it, that's used. Um, But I would love, we're going to get more into that later because I have a question for you about that, but um, first, how are you? And I'm also passing the mic over to Nick, who's going to ask you the first question.
1: (laughs) Hi, Richard. Okay. Hi, Nick. I guess nice I should to meet say, you. Professor Wolf comes more naturally to me, but I'll try to say Rick. Um, yeah, yeah,
2: no, no. The, you know, you, you sit on your ass long enough in a university to get all these degrees. <laughs> Having done it in my life, I know how little it
1: means, so Rick is fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, cool. that gets to actually what I want to ask the first question. So, I, As an undergraduate, I studied um, sociology and economics. And um, I, we had to write an undergraduate thesis, and I wrote about NAFTA, and the North American Free Trade Agreement, and specifically how it was covered in the news media, um, I guess what we now call the corporate news media. Um, right. But um, So anyway, that's, that's actually where I first came across um, your work. And so it really is um, truly an honor to have you here because um, I, I feel like... In some ways, my life has been devoted to sort of like trying to um, always explain myself in a way. Like after doing that work as an undergraduate, I always felt it really gave me a really useful framework for understanding the world and kind of being prepared for the changes in the world, which I know I've heard you speak about. Um, But. It, uh, it ruined me for the workplace, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> so anyway, my life has been devoted to sort of like um, through various creative endeavors kind of getting out um, the word about, uh, I don't know, for lack of a better word, let's just say socialism. So, but anyway, um, what, one of the thing, and, and I was just kind of like reading up um, on your life and I noticed that you're from, uh, I think you were born in Youngstown, Ohio, Yes, that's true. I work. Yeah. So I have my Hungarian side and my father's side of the family is from, the well, they landed in Youngstown. And um, my mother's Italian side of the family were also coal miners in uh, western Pennsylvania, um, Italian coal miners. Um, so anyway, I was wondering if you feel, as I do, that that, that sort of family experience influenced you becoming... Uh, I guess what we'll call it uh, a socialist uh, economist. Well, I'm
2: sure it did, but the the conditions under which uh, my family lived were a little bit unusual uh, in the sense that I'm the first um, member of my family to be born in the United States. both my mm. both of my parents were Europeans. My father was French, and my mother was German. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, when I was born, uh, they didn't speak English. So I grew up in a household in which German was the major language and French was the second language. And it was only when they dropped me into the kindergarten that I had to learn English, because that's what everybody spoke. Mm-hmm. But we didn't stay in Youngstown very long. I have very few memories. We moved around because my my parents were basically refugees, so they Mm -hmm. were dependent on social services to get a job, to get housing. And we moved around, let's see, Ohio, Missouri, and Colorado. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And only when I was five years old did my father get a job in New York. And then we came east, uh, and I lived I grew up in, in a suburb of New York City, and so my, my, my origins, yes, I was born in Youngstown, but I'm not really part of mm-hmm. the culture there. Mm-hmm. And again, my father, for example, when I was born, he was uh, his job was to push a wheelbarrow full of steel ingots in a factory of a company called the Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company, which was actually a very large steel-producing company, which is what used to be up and down that that valley there that that Youngstown's part of. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, again, it's misleading because before he left Germany, he was a lawyer and a judge in Germany, but he left as a refugee, And when he came to the United States, they didn't recognize neither his education, nor his legal degree, nor his judge. And so he had to be, you know, a steel worker in a factory. But again, a little unusual because he had advanced degrees from half a dozen European universities and all that.
1: Right. And, And so I'm sure that those degrees also then helped him to move up from that position, I'm guessing.
2: Well, it did but not very far because mm-hmm. he was by that time older and the universities that might have hired him didn't want to give tenure to somebody who was already in his late thirties, early forties, all of that.
3: Mm-hmm. Right. Right.
2: But it was part of, you know, the way it influences me is that he was disappointed to put it mildly um, And so I'm the first child, the son, and my job for both my father and my mother was to basically live the lives Mm. they had hoped for, anticipated, expected, and that were cut off because of the refugee situation. Mm
3: -hmm. Mm. So I was,
2: in a sense, under the pressure to realize their dreams, uh, which didn't leave terrible much room for my own. Yeah, um, And yeah. so, for example, I had to go to get all of the credentials that my father didn't have for the United States. He had them for Europe. He didn't have them for the United States. So, you know, I went to Harvard and then to Stanford and then to Yale. I'm like a poster child
3: mm-hmm. for
2: American fancy education. But and the one thing you get there, the education is mediocre. But what you do get is you get these degrees. And these are people who fall over for degrees.
3: Yeah, and,
2: yeah. Uh, yeah, And but you know the the good news is, um, makes it possible for me to have entree all over the place. I mean, you probably would not have heard of me. Mm-hmm if I was a graduate of, I don't know, University of Tennessee, and I don't mean to pick on right, Tennessee, right, but right. just because of the way <clears throat> the prestige system in this country works, so I get, uh, I get access, I get opportunities, I get listened to, uh, not because of what I say, but fairly often despite what I say, because I have the pedigrees,
1: that's really what this is about. And, you know, I was I'm curious, too, uh, I know, um, you know, my my Italian grandmother would, would actually tell me, um, makes me think about what the, we're going through now, that, you know, as an Italian immigrant, they, they got jobs as coal miners, and the, the Ku Klux Klan used to actually, like, she told me a story about them being run out of their house, which was probably company housing that they were living in, Um, and uh, by the Ku Klux Klan in the middle of the night as a little girl. And I know, I think that there was uh, a lot of activity like that in Youngstown as well. I don't know if that was before. All over the country. Yes, of course. All
2: over the country. I mean, uh, I spent most of my adult life living in New Haven, Connecticut. I went to Yale, which is located there. Right. And I got involved in local politics, and I stayed there. And the majority ethnic group in New Haven, Connecticut, is Italian American,
3: mm-hmm.
2: <clears throat> and I got to know a lot of those people because I worked with them. And the stories they told me about the Ku Klux—believe it or not—even in Connecticut, the Ku Klux yeah. Klan—but also the, the treatment by them uh, of them by the Irish was a story many of the older people. Would tell me over and over again. I mean,
3: mm.
2: as school children coming home from school and having the Irish families throw stones at them. I mean, just mm-hmm. it just extraordinary.
1: Yeah, there was a lot of. It seems like there was a lot of animosity that was, you know, sort of built up between various immigrant groups and also um, black communities that had come up from the south to work uh, in steel yep. mills and coal mines and
2: it's a horrible <clears throat> it's a horrible story of sadly of immigrants arriving being very abusively treated and then turning around and doing to the next group what had been done to them mm-hmm mm. Mm-hmm. So the English who came first, or you know, they killed off the uh, Native Americans. Then mm-hmm. they established themselves. Then the Irish came, and the British did to them what they always did to the Irish, which was awful.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Then the Irish did turned around and did that to the Italians who came later.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, it's just, and, and everybody did it to the African American. I mean, right. Yeah. Right. It's
1: Seriously. true. But, it's truly. And up. I also think it was, you know, we always see in examples of history that it was, it was an animosity that was really manufactured. In other words, uh, you know, uh, steel mills would break any attempts at unionization by bringing in other groups, which then, of course, yep. created a lot of animosity. And, um,
2: yeah, and they would, they would use, in the case of the Irish and the English. It took a very strong anti-Catholic form.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: When the Irish did it against the Italians, it couldn't go that way. Cause, but, for example, in New Haven, you have a huge number of Catholic churches, but rigidly, to this day, rigidly segregated between the Irish versus the Italian mm and now versus the Hispanic and the black.
0: I didn't know that.
2: Yeah. Each of them have their own Catholic church. I do not know what connections or relationships among the priests in the different churches might be, but the parishes are in their own neighborhoods with their own activity. it's amazing. Well, I didn't
0: know that it was that. Yeah, I didn't really realize it was that separated. You know, I really like what you said. I think it's so important to recognize that when you said um, that your pet, that what you say is listened to, you know, despite your pedigree, you know? Right. And right. I think that the, the fact that you have that pedigree is one incredible considering, as you're describing where you came from, but also that um, you, you're able to recognize that and, you know, use your voice in this way, thankfully, for us. And- <laughs>
2: yeah, no, no, I, I, and I, I, you know, I've, ever since I've been a kid, that's been clear to me I, I didn't I didn't have much respect for the schools the the, the phoniness at Harvard uh, mm-hmm. the pretense the put on the the careful cultivation of the notion that we really were better than everybody else it, only, mm-hmm. it turned me off early on um, and I wasn't the only one because it produces a, an incredible tension which is very psychological
3: Yes. because in a way
2: you're understanding, even if you couldn't put it into words then, that you're being told that where you came from, which includes your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, uh, are really crappy uh, people yep. that you should be kind of half ashamed of uh-huh. and you should rise above, which meant looking and acting and talking like these uh professors and other administrators that you were hobnobbing with in the dormitories at Harvard. But their phoniness on the one hand, and whatever linked you to your origins on the other, were more than enough to make a good number of us very, um, how shall I put it, oppositional.
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah. And
2: uh, we would ask questions in class, and we we weren't very nice to the professors who could not handle them we <laughs> we worked off our upset
3: yeah. uh,
2: and sometimes you know excessively on them right and uh, we sh- we should have understood that ironically a good number of them were us mm-hmm. uh, but they they didn't dare depart from the script and so they played out the game of harvard even though they themselves were uncomfortable. I learned that later yeah. from some of them who told me that. So it was that's
0: fascinating. Yeah, I think that's so interesting to play out the script or not, and you obviously went off script. And, um, uh, yeah, but I've
2: been, I, again, I've been very lucky. I, I, I was able to, because of that, I've been, you know, I enjoy telling the people who've hired me over my life that I know they're hiring me because of my pedigree. They're not hiring me because of who I am or what I teach or what I say, Um, they really are hiring me because it looks good on the brochure or it looks Uh good in the catalog of the university uh, to have Harvard and Yale. And so therefore, you know, and they look sheepish. They assure me that's not the case. (laughs) But, you know, being a teacher all my life, I've learned to read people's eyes as well as their, listen to what they say (laughs) their eyes are telling me to stop talking because it's embarrassing them
1: <laughs> so, so um, Rick, I'm, I'm really curious. I think the the major kind of overarching thing uh, that we were hoping to tackle today is you know it's it's been really hard. We've actually sort of taken a break from this podcast um, and we've been participating in some of the protests, uh, not as much perhaps as we would like or should. Um, but this very correct reaction to police violence um, has, uh, you know, g- given us pause. And so we were hoping to kind of come back to the podcast today and think about, you know, everyone is, there's a lot of conversation now about reimagining um, what policing should look like in the United States uh, to sort of defund the police is sort of the catch-all for that. Um, but I, I feel like, Alex and I both feel like, um, the complex, interwoven nature of race, uh, poverty, justice is 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 mixed up always with economics, and it's something that we both feel like is missing from from a lot of the discussions we've heard about reimagining the police. So we really wanted to ask you today, like, and I know this is a big question that we don't expect you to answer um, succinctly, certainly. But, you know, what, what might a just economy look like in the United States? So if we reimagine the uh, economy of the United States, uh, what, what might that look like? <clears throat> well, for me, um, let me try
2: to, in a short period mm-hmm. of time, give you, give you an image of, of at least how, how I make uh, sense of it. Okay. And I don't mean to focus on the economics because it's more important than anything else. It isn't. But it is a very important part of a story that is an awful lot of the time either left out or given way too little attention Mm -hmm. or weight in conversation. So I I stress it mostly to compensate for its being under-evaluated, not out of some notion that it's more important than anything else.
0: Mm -hmm. Agreed, agreed.
2: Having said that, the first and foremost thing that you would have to do, well, there are two things that you would have to do, is you would have to give to every, if you're going to talk about the United States as an example, but it would apply elsewhere mm-hmm. too, if you're going to give uh, deal with the United States, you're going to have to give every single adult person an absolute guarantee of a job, and of a decent income.
3: Mm.
2: Uh, short of that, you're not serious. If you're not going to do that, then you are allowing um, a given, which is the grotesque inequality of this society, to be an absolute. You will not question. You will not challenge. You will not change. And once you've done that, you kind of you, you know you've given away so much that the attempt to solve problems like uh, discrimination or poverty or racism, you, you, you've, you've shot yourself in the foot before you ever took out, off, and you're therefore not going to get very far. Right. Um, so for me, that's uh, crucial, number one. And number two, that the workplace, whether it's an office, a factory, a store, it doesn't matter. That the workplace, wherever you go, you and I with our guarantee of having a job, um, has to be run democratically. In other words, it mm-hmm. has to be a worksite in which everybody
3: mm-hmm. has an
2: equal voice, whether you are the supervisor or the person who sweeps up at the end of the day or someone who works on a machine or someone who... Uh, counsels other workers on problems of, I don't know, alcoholism, whatever it is you do, you are part of the community that constitutes the workplace. Mm -hmm. What that does is mean that we have finally given people the democracy and the equality that was promised to the American people from the beginning of our society and has in fact never been provided to them. Uh, you know, and I, I stress the business about the organization of the workplace probably more than anything else because it's so crucial in my mind, mm-hmm. and again, because it is so neglected by everybody else. We, in our factories, our offices, our stores, and by the way, I see this in health spas and wellness centers mm-hmm. and everywhere else because they replicate these these models just as everybody else does yes you have a tiny group of people at the top the people who started the business or the people who own the business or the board of directors selected by the major shareholders which is how corporations run but it's a tiny group of people who sit at the apex of every enterprise
3: Mm -hmm.
2: large small and medium and they make all the key decisions they decide what the output of this enterprise will be what goods or services are going to be produced they determine the technology that will be used. they decide on the location where the production will occur and then they have the discretion to determine what is done with the profits or the the net revenues that the enterprise can generate uh... that's not a democratic arrangement well Mm -hmm virtues or flaws of it are it's not a democratic arrangement it never was um, and it's remarkable when you think about it because the tiny group at the top can make all the key decisions including hiring and firing the majority of the people mm-hmm. in the enterprise who work there but they are in no way accountable to the majority whose lives they have a deep influence on. Mm. Right. That, whatever the opposite of democracy is, yeah. that's it. Right, it's that's what I was just you know, going to say. I, and what I try to hammer home to people is that, you know, modern society got rid of the king yeah. and the queen because we were sick and tired as people of being, quote-unquote, the subjects of these other people who had all the power, who lived in the great palace, who wielded the authority and all the rest. And we say we don't want that. We want a situation where everybody has one vote and decides who will be the leaders, whether it's in your community or your state or your country, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And it's this wonderful anti-monarchism, which is then completely forgotten when you step inside, you cross the threshold of your office, your store, or your factory, where immediately you accept as if it were some kind of God-given requirement, that a small number of people will be telling you what to do every minute of the time. Amen. Right. It, and and, right. you, will and have no, you will have no authority over them. You will have no accountability mm-hmm. that they will be uh, uh, governed in some sense by those whom they in turn want to govern. The whole logic of mm-hmm. democracy is, is gotten rid of.
1: Right. So and, what? So, so just comes, to em, to re to, uh, to reemphasize what I what I hear you saying is that our, our the way our economy is organized is fundamentally at odds with at least our ideals of a, de- a democratic society.
2: That's right. They don't. You know, politically we pretend, uh-huh. right? We yes. we have a vote. We all know better. We know that people with a lot of money and buy the advertising and and bribe the politics. We we understand, Mm -hmm. but we at least have the principle, the idea of universal suffrage and all of that. But in the business world, we don't even, we we don't allow the pretense. There is no pretense. There nothing. It it is naked authoritarianism. And, And I stress it, I stress it because everybody knows what i'm saying no one's going to i've been talking like this for, uh-huh. for decades right there and, is no refutation of what i'm saying because yeah. everybody who works knows very well that the, st- the story i've told you know you can amend it a little bit here or there but they know that it's true because they live it yeah. what they've never done is had it confronting them as i do it as the direct contradiction of the little story we like to have our political leaders tell us Mm -hmm. about how we are a great democracy. And and when I hear that, then I hit. And I explain to people, look, most adults spend the majority of their life in the workplace. Five out of seven days, the best hours of the day, you're at Mm -hmm. the job. If democracy means anything, that would have been the first place for it to have been installed instituted yeah. because that's where you are and don't tell mm-hmm. me we're fighting in Afghanistan to bring democracy we're not in a position to bring democracy elsewhere because we don't have it here
0: amen and, right.
2: and at that point the audience, whether it's in a union hall or a church or a university or wherever I go, you could hear a pin drop mm. because in a in, in a in a moment, I have them because I'm not telling them something strange, weird, or foreign. I'm describing to them what they live through, and they know it. They don't like it, but they know mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. yeah, and, and we see it, it, it and becomes, I think
1: we see that these these uh, this kind of philosophical fault line in our society between our economy and our our, our political ideals, is I think is felt most violently in poor communities, and then we turn around and ask the police, or or think that the police will somehow be able to, you know, uh, put a lid on that fault line.
2: And it's exactly, exactly. But look, to be let's be honest with each other. That's what the police have been asked to do. Yes, and that's what, in fact, the police have often done. And for good periods of time, they have been successful in doing it. At least successful in the sense that we've had a capitalist system in this country uh, for a good 250 years or whatever, however you want to count it. Um, And that's been a pretty successful run for any capitalism anywhere. And it's one Mm -hmm. of the reasons the United States is as wealthy uh, a country as it is because it's been able uh, to manage it. Mm -hmm. But having said that, I don't want to take away from that. I think that has to be faced. Mm -hmm. I think the success, if I can use that word,
3: Mm -hmm.
2: of the police as a mechanism to keep the lid on a society that is so unjust, is so unequal, is so undemocratic, is because it has been and I use this word advisedly, mm-hmm. very lucky. That is, our yeah. capitalism was lucky in being able to solve certain problems associated with inequality and lack yeah. of democracy,
3: well, and I mean,
2: that the, the police saw, we, could we, be yeah. used because you had so organized the society that the police would not have to be used On everybody Mm -hmm. they could be concentrated on the poor on the lower middle class on the non-white people because you had organized and I'd be glad to explain how you did how they did that you had organized um, a, a peculiar kind of capitalism that could offload its contradictions its problems from the general public, i.e., the whites, onto a subgroup, i.e., the non-whites, and for a good period of our history, also the females, white yeah. females as well as non-white females. Mm-hmm. And it was it right. Could, it was
1: right there from the beginning of our history. I mean, the fact that we had a great economic cushion in the fact that we had the, the greatest real estate land grab. Uh, you know, probably in human history, in taking over the North American continent. If we if we think about European settlement of the Americas, uh, away from the, the uh, indigenous people that were here. Uh, so that right off the bat, right, was... and that and that we
2: imposed on them a very military slash police type of quote unquote solution. We weren't going to work things out with them. We were going to beat them to death. Uh, which we did, I mean, right. in, in so many words, which we did, which established this very peculiar uh, American notion that you solve problems by a military or police means, mm-hmm. which is coming back now to haunt us in a terrible, terrible yeah. way. But so let, I... let, me exp- let me explain, if I could, sure. how the United States organized its own capitalism to make it possible for the police to succeed, because it not only explains to people what the police are, but it also explains why they were successful and why they're not successful anymore and will become less successful uh, in the years ahead, which is going to mean protests and trouble Mm -hmm. on a scale that will make what we've had the last couple of weeks look like a, a, a picnic.
0: Child's play.
2: Okay, here here we go. Uh, and, and if it's taking too long, just shut me up. And no, you know, no, I'm, I, a, I'm thir- a professor, so you okay. know, If I go too long, yeah,
0: I'm thoroughly I'm on
2: the students to start fidgeting. Anyway, <laughs> no,
0: I'm um, I'm the only fidgeting that I have is only that I don't want to run out of time because I could hear you for you because I could hear this forever. But and we and we and, have a couple uh, of okay, questions. But I'm, okay, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled yeah. to hear this description that you're about right. to give. Yeah,
1: because one of our big questions is sort of what everybody can know about economics. I feel like we're so often told like ah leave leave economics to the to the experts. Yeah, that, so, I saw that question of you. And I'm glad you asked it. Right. There
2: I can be really brief.
1: Oh, okay. okay.
2: That right. is total bullshit and you nobody should take that seriously. Right. Economics is about things That most of us already know, because you have to live in the economy. It's not an arcane topic. Mm -hmm. You have to go to the store. You have to budget your checkbook. You have to earn your income. You have to put away for your kids' education. We are all dealing with the economic realities around us. Material that we already know three quarters of, and it should be easily accessible. And if it isn't, It's not the fault of the people who are learning. It's the fault of the people who are teaching. Thank you. A lot of economics, I'm talking about myself, a lot of those of us who teach uh, have unfortunately borrowed a model from the lawyers. The lawyers figured out years ago to translate, the common problems that occur in any community that have to be adjudicated. where We disagree on something, and it has to be decided and worked out. Right. If if they rewrote all of that into an absurd language that nobody understood, then the daily problems people have would require them to hire a lawyer whose job would basically be (laughs) to retranslate the gobbledygook (laughs) back into simple English so we could get on with business.
0: Exactly. Lots of
2: economics is like that.
3: Yeah.
0: For
2: example, I learned just to be very concrete. I learned as a, a student that I could make—I I mean this—ten times more money per year being an economist working for big corporations than I could if I mm-hmm. were a teacher. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it's obvious. It's very clear. That, that nobody hides this. Right. It, it's just outright out there. Right. Uh, they want you to do for them. A very special service, which is, by the way, not what you're told research or anything else. Yeah. Mostly what economists do is translate the immediate profit seeking grubbiness of a business into lofty sounding. Economics bullshit about how what this company wants at this moment yes. is really what would be best for the community as a whole. Exactly. Right? I, I always
1: say to people, I say, oh no, no. It, like economics is one of the mo- is probably the most corrupt field because basically they're looking for anyone, a so called expert who will say, oh, this is why we need to give more money to the rich. And that, that, gets, that gets into actually like the, the, what I like to call the, the greatest hoax in human history, which is, and really the latest lid for the American economy, which is trickle-down economics.
2: Right. It's a perfect example. Here's something, you, here's the truth of it. When there's an economic problem, we want you, say the business community, we want you, the government, whom we ridicule all the time, to please save us. And we mm-hmm. want you to make us the priority. Right. We get the scarce government money, and we get it most, and we get it first. Yes. But you can't say that because it sounds as disgusting as it is. Right. So you need an economist to invent something later called trickle-down economics to tell you a line of horse crap to the effect that if you give this money, all of it first, to the people at the top, they will, in some automatic way no one has ever specified, <laughs> trickle it all down so we'll all get it. I mean, if you take that seriously, it means that you really had a very defective
1: education from a very early time. Right. Yes. It so, so perfectly Wait. fits in with the idea of the bo- the boss that you were talking about in the workplace and that like authority comes from the top and therefore you know money it may it somehow fit into the ideology of you know that money would somehow also come from the top
0: wait hold on guys guys yeah i really don't want to because i was very excited to hear i mean i'm loving all of this and just to point it just to say add in this, uh, Rick, that I always say if you're a Republican, and now I would add, or Libertarian and probably even Democrat, you're either an idiot or an asshole. So you're either an idiot because you think yes, trickle-down economics works, or you're an asshole because you know it doesn't work and you still fucking do it.
2: Yes, um, and it, it, it's really terrible because it, uh, many times I am put on a panel or a debate with a neoliberal or a libertarian uh, and all of that. And I have to go through (laughs) over and over. And it's always, since they live mostly in a bubble with their own friends, it's it's mostly a kind of shock for them. and that's where my credentials are helpful. Yes, and that's where I wish I was
0: you because yeah, I I start yelling you're an idiot or an asshole and then I and then I have to leave all the potluck parties at our private school. So <laughs> that's when I wish I could channel you and and be you would live in my 49-year-old female body saying all oh, this. That's my dream. But yeah, wait, no, I, mean, I don't want yeah, to distract you, you from well, you're I, I that, you were about to give that I want you to
2: have the confidence. Okay, okay. I, I try that with every group I talk to. Okay please if you're hearing what i'm saying what it should do is give you the confidence not to let go to hold on to those insights that you have that your life taught you and not be intimidated by somebody else with some professorial credential who's a who really is a paid spokesperson for something else that you have every right uh, to oppose
0: thank you you're actually anyway, you're actually making me, tell, me cry me if you could see me story i'm getting misty eyed Okay, that's the story I want to hear. And just so you know, right. you've actually and, made and, me a to And
2: hand. it'll show you the, the absurdity of, of trickle-down and okay. things
0: like that. Okay, we're excited. We got cool. our popcorn.
2: All right, here we go. <laughs> um, capitalism is usually uh, described as having begun in England more or less in the 17th century, modern capitalism, and spread from England to Western Europe and then North America, and then over the last two or three centuries all over the world. So it's the dominant... System today, absolutely true. And by system, by the way, I don't mean markets because those have existed throughout human history uh, with many different economic systems.
3: Mm-hmm. Slavery,
2: for example, which is not capitalism, slavery had a market. That's where you bought and sold slaves, or if you take the American example, where you bought and sold cotton. Um, having a market in all kinds of things is not a peculiarity of capitalism to refer to capitalism as a system that relies on a market or a free market is simply a misunderstanding mm-hmm. of history feudalism with lords and serfs had markets all okay. the time mm-hmm. the soviet union had markets all the time mm-hmm. the people's republic of china throughout its history and at this moment has loads and loads Of market Mm. so the notion that there is something peculiar about capitalism and the market is a basic misunderstanding Mm. number two the notion that the that capitalism has to do with private enterprise uh, meaning that an enterprise is not part of the government is something formed owned and operated by private citizens who have no position in the government That is true of capitalism, but it is likewise true. Feudal manners Mm
3: -hmm. were in the
2: main not-governmental operations. Plantations with slaves were in the main private enterprises. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's nothing unique about having a non-governmental institution producing goods and services. That's not peculiar to capitalism. It's the norm in slavery and feudalism, two of the major Other system. So what is going on in capitalism is a peculiar but very purposeful misunderstanding. What's unique about capitalism is that it has organized the production of goods and services in a unique way. It's not slavery, because in slavery the two positions in production were either the master or the slave.
3: In Mm -hmm. feudalism,
2: the two uh, positions in production were the lord and the serf. And in capitalism, the two positions in economics, in production of goods and services, were the employer and the employee. Mm -hmm. Those are three radically different ways Mm -hmm. of organizing uh, the relationships among people in the production of goods and services. They're very different. For example, in capitalism, the employer pays a wage to the employee. The lord does no such thing with a serf, and the master does no such thing with a slave. Mm -hmm. Similarly, in slavery, the slave is the property. One of the two players, one of the two positions is owned by the other. That is not the case in feudalism. That is not the case um, in capitalism. In capitalism, the employer and the employee enter into a voluntary deal Mm -hmm. sanctified by something called a contract. Mm -hmm. None of that exists in feudalism or in slavery. So they're very different. Mm -hmm. But they do have something in common. In each case, a small minority of the people involved in production have all the power and accumulate a disproportionate share of the wealth. Masters are powerful and wealthy. Slaves are not. Lords are powerful and wealthy. Serfs are not. And employers are powerful and wealthy, and employees are not. Why do I tell you this? Mm -hmm. Because capitalism, unlike slavery and feudalism, promised. In the 18th century, when it, the French and American and other revolutions overthrew feudalism and established capitalism, the promise was made and honestly believed by people like Robespierre or Danton in the French Revolution or Thomas Jefferson and George Washington in the American. They believed that overthrowing the feudal lord serf relationship and replacing it with the employer-employee relationship, would bring in, in the words of the French Revolution, liberty, equality, and fraternity. Mm -hmm. In the American Revolution, democracy. Mm -hmm. But in point of fact, that promise of capitalism was, in fact, betrayed. They didn't bring neither equality, nor liberty, nor justice, nor any of that shit. Mm -hmm. They promised it, but they didn't. Mm -hmm. And if Mm -hmm. if I had time, which I don't, Mm -hmm. I would explain to you that the reason there's a person called Karl Marx whose work we read Mm -hmm. is because Marx was the first major thinker coming roughly 50 years after the French and American revolutions
3: Mm -hmm. who
2: said, I am going to be an analyst of capitalism but i'm going to do it unlike adam smith and david ricardo not as a proponent but as an opponent not as a celebrant but as a critic because capitalism for me has to be explained around this question why did a system that promised liberty equality fraternity and democracy fail to this day, to deliver on those promises. Mm-hmm. All right. With that okay. background, yes. Wherever capitalism was established over the last three hundred years, the following sentence is true: On average, every four to seven years, there's an economic crash, or a downturn, or a recession, or a depression. Uh, we have so many words for it uh-huh. because it is such a ubiquitous problem in the system everything has been tried over 300 years to to fix this problem to make capitalism less unstable in -hmm. this recurring business cycle downturn saga than it has proven to be every effort for 300 years to overcome this instability has failed Mm. That's why we're in another one right now. And in fact, let's take the last 20 years, which are the first 20 years of this new century. We had a crash of capitalism in the spring of 2000. Mm -hmm. It's called the dot-com crisis. Mm -hmm. In 2008, we had another crash called the subprime mortgage crisis. And here in 2020, we have yet another crash, Mm -hmm. this one called the Mm COVID-19, 20 years, three crashes, you got it Mm -hmm. every seven years, Mm -hmm. just like it always was. Mm. Now, here comes the real punchline. This crisis threatens everybody because the uh, lifetime of an adult these years is 60, 70, 80 years, which means you are going to be threatened by an economic crash, many times in your lifetime, and if it happens at the wrong moment in your job, in your category, in your community, Mm -hmm. your house may be lost, your education may be interrupted forever, your family may blow up on you, your home, I mean, on and on and on. Mm -hmm. And, And I tell a joke at this point in my classes, which I'll tell you. If you lived which if you lived with a roommate as unstable as capitalism, <laughs> you would have moved out long ago. But you live and you accept an economic system that is so irrationally organized that it plunges you into a major risk threatening your life, your education, your savings, your family, everything over and over again. Well, and,
1: and then, let me well, just if, add if there, you let this, if I may. Let, let me finish this. Yeah.
2: If, you let, if you let this play out, then the average person in a capitalist system would have gotten rid of this system long ago. So how is it that we can explain the quote-unquote acceptance of this instability? The answer is, That those capitalisms that survived had to find a way to mask, to hide, Mm -hmm. to so organize Mm -hmm. the periodic downturns that the mass of the working class would not feel threatened by it. Mm
3: -hmm. And the
2: way that was done in the United States was to designate specific parts Of the population as being the ones who would be the last hired and the first fired Mm. the ones upon whom Mm. the ups and downs of the cycle would be the burden Mm. because by doing that to African Americans and brown people and for much of our history to female people so that the women would be pulled into the labor force when you needed them and chucked back out into the household when you didn't. And, and black people would be sent back south to the rural parts when you couldn't accommodate them in the industrial cities, on and on and on. That's how we did it. Mm-hmm. And we, the police come in because they then became the people who could present one face to the whites who were exempted from the business cycle, who could count on their jobs being more or less steady. You didn't need the police for them, Mm. but you needed it for the people you really screwed. You could allow the man, you could take the man and take care of his wife, often violently, by the way, as we well know. But for the African-American community, you need a paid core of what were until recently mostly white cops to beat the crap out of them in order to terrify them into not doing something about the fact that capitalism's instability was disproportionately loaded onto them.
1: Right. Okay. So so today, thank you so much for bringing it up. If you don't deal
2: with this, if you don't deal with this at the root of the problem, You're not going to solve neither the poverty that these folks have been required to live in, nor the racism that has justified all of this, allowing the capitalists who take advantage of this situation not to admit their responsibility and their system's responsibility, but instead to blame the victim, in this case,
1: the blacks, right, and if, so so the this latest masking is being ripped off, and and that's what we're feeling now. But right. there's another really unfortunate thing about this, uh, as you said, so-called unruly roommate, which is we've now discovered he's he's sucking all the oxygen out of the the room as well, and uh, and, and I mean by that that we have this giant uh, externality to capitalism. I I'll, I'll say to keep it, uh, I think correct, but also simple, um, which is. Uh, global warming. And I right. see this crisis uh, as very much uh, being connected to that. And I think that we're now starting to see that this thing that we spoke about as cycles, and you're, of course you're correct to see these cycles, but that what seems on the horizon is an end, uh, that there is a finite limit to these cycles as well. Do you agree with that?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, yes, I, I think you're quite right. I think capitalism has been able to reproduce itself in this country by ignoring its ecological costs by ignoring the social costs of what we've just been discussing and then you know it doesn't become doesn't you don't need a genius you don't need a phd to understand that this is not infinitely reproducible you can't the notion that because you got away with it for a hundred years you always will, I mean, that's too stupid for words. That never applies. That's a kind of head in the sand um, mentality. It's a little bit like uh, not recognizing that starting in the 1970s, when real wages of American workers stopped rising, as they had the previous Mm -hmm. century. they stopped rising, American working class, not knowing what to do, because the American dream requires rising wages. They weren't getting rising wages anymore. So the solution, quote-unquote, put it in quotation marks, the solution was to go on the greatest borrowing binge any working mm-hmm. class in the world had ever gone on before because they could only afford the American dream now with a mortgage, with mm-hmm. car payments, with a credit card, and now the latest one, the college alone. Right. And so you, what you have done is you have created an illusion but anybody in the world knows you can't keep accumulating debt if the underlying real wage income isn't going anywhere yeah. because at a certain point that debt will become so high that the the principal and interest cannot be covered by the stagnant wage and that's what 2008 was mm-hmm. and that's what's happening again now yes, yes. it's
0: yeah. chilling and what you say about you know the the sort of and I know you had to do it quickly, but the end of capitalism revealing that its success, its so-called success, is a one a sham and is relies on policing underprivileged peoples who are yep. black people, brown people, and then we'll add in women as well, and in the indigenous Americans. Um, um, so that said. Now that we have, so now that we are in this COVID pandemic and there are these now protests against police brutality going on that are obviously about so much more, but men, some people may not realize the people who are protesting, you know, they might not understand, and I'm not talking about people of color at all, I'm talking about whatever my my, my white liberal next door neighbor does, might not understand the systemic issues that have resulted in these protests, what do we do? Because if these to change these things require this collective action, global warming, healthcare right. crisis, human migration. Um, and we lost Bernie Sanders, not that he could solve all that, but it seemed like that was a brief moment of hope that maybe... You know, Bernie, that we could come together to work towards democratic socialism. We've lost that. So, how can we rebuild? Is it possible? Do you see any any future in this, or is it just this cycle of brief moments of hope and despair for the rest of our lives until we die?
2: No, I, I certainly do not. Uh, that's as bad as it sounds. No, I, I, don't, I don't. I don't. I really. I, I am, in fact, very optimistic, okay. and, and I, let me tell you why. Okay. Very briefly. On one level, it's personal. Uh, I have been a critic of capitalism uh, most of my adult life. It's not new, um, and for most of that time, even though I've been a professor at universities and all of that. Um, I would get an invitation to speak on the radio or television or uh, give an address at some university probably once every two to three months for most of the 40 years of my Mm -hmm. being a professor. Then 10 years ago, roughly 2010, maybe 2011, everything changed. Mm -hmm. So to give you an example, Mm -hmm. this interview that I'm doing with you Mm -hmm. is the fourth one Today. Great. Wow. And I have one more at Jesus. four o'clock. Then I will be done.
3: Gosh.
0: This is a
2: normal weekday for me.
0: Excellent.
2: I will have had this one
3: mm-hmm.
2: and another one that are podcasts. Then I will have one radio and two television. That's how it works out today. Wow. Uh and that's been the case now for almost six years. Oh my god. Uh, I've done more public speaking in the last five years than I did in the previous 40, uh, and, and much more in the last five mm-hmm. than the total in the, in the previous 40. Okay. So a criticism of capitalism mm-hmm. and an advocacy of radical change is now a hot topic. Okay. I am in much demand. I turn down many invitations because I literally... Don't have the time. Great. Uh, not not for lack of <laughs> desire, not yes, for lack yes. of interest. I just don't have the time.
0: All right. Well, that's good uh, news. And nor
2: am I alone. Uh, this has nothing to do with whatever skills I have in presenting the material. It has to do with a radical change in the population mm-hmm. of the United States, which is now interested. Which is eager, which gobbles up the stuff I write, the mm-hmm. stuff I mm-hmm. uh, read. Uh, for, for example, I do a weekly radio television program called Economic Update. Uh, we have two hundred thousand subscribers to this program on the YouTube uh, channel. Mm-hmm. Uh, these these are people we don't we, we don't have the facilities or the money to go out and find these people. They mm-hmm. find us. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And that tells you something. Mm-hmm. Uh, about about this country. When we first started, I would occasionally invite people to be on my radio show. And, you know, they might or they might not do it. Now we have to decide who, among Mm -hmm. the people eager to be on our show, we can accommodate. You know, everything has turned around. So for me, it's crystal clear that I am being carried along by a wave, uh, an oceanic Mm -hmm. wave. It's the same wave that produced uh, Occupy Wall Street. It's the same wave that carried Bernie. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's carrying a lot of us, and it is not about... I don't want to take away from Bernie's skills and Bernie's appeal. He was the right character at the right moment, obviously. But he knows. I know him, and Mm -hmm. I've worked with him on and off in my life, he knows as well as I do that he was saying these sorts of things for years mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he barely got a listen. Yeah. Then suddenly, everyone in America, millions of people uh, turned to him, were perfectly happy to go around with a button that says Bernie because <laughs> the fact that he was a socialist didn't bother them one whit. And And that's what I'm learning everywhere. Great. So for me, I mean, let me give you a, a, an example. I'm, I'm, I'm actually outside of New York City
3: mm-hmm. because of the
2: virus. We're in a,
3: yeah. in
2: a country place that my in-laws uh, had for years. It's a little rural village. Mm-hmm. Two Saturdays ago, I'm going to the local farmer's market, which is held on Saturday morning, and I can't get my car to, to the place where the little stalls set up. Mm-hmm. Why? Because the people in this little town, are having a march. This town never has <laughs> marches, and there they are. I would say a um, hundred and fifty people in a town whose population is a thousand. They're marching yeah. down the one street that this little rural town has, carrying signs that say "Black Lives Matter." That was the most frequent sign, mm-hmm. but a few others. Uh, you know, against the police or something like that. (laughs) I would say overwhelming majority of people were 40 years of age or younger, uh, many with little children with them. Uh Uh, There weren't more than five or six black people because there really are none around here. Mm -hmm. It was overwhelmingly white. uh, and, And I asked people, and they told me, yes, we've never done this before, it's too much now. It's too much. Mm. It's too much. I heard it over and over again. Enough is enough. It's too much. It's too much. <clears throat> and these people were activated. Something happened yeah. to move them off of their couches and their desks and from behind their the wheels of their cars to do mm. something many of them told me they had never done before, make a little sign in the garage behind their house and... Uh, put a string through it, and carry it around their neck, and march downtown where all the other people in this community would see them. Remember, this is a small town. You do anything like this, everybody knows, you Mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. just the way towns work. The local cops are making room. You know why? Well, it turns out that among the marches was the mayor of the little town and half the board of selectmen with which is like the city council here. Yeah. Um, that everybody understood that this town was now part of a national movement in support of the people that don't even live in the town um, and that are barely known by these folks because of who they are and yeah. where they work. Uh, it's remarkable. Yeah. So very, you're seeing you're you're seeing
0: remarkable. the tide shift. And, and as far I, as I'm concerned,
2: yeah. most of this is. Very positive,
0: okay. But I have
2: to tell you, as an yeah. economist, and maybe this is a topic for another yeah. conversation.
0: Yeah,
2: what's really driving all of it at this point?
0: Yeah,
2: is not the Black Lives Matter. It's not the police behavior. It's not the attraction of socialism.
0: Yeah,
2: it is that. It my judgment now.
3: Yeah,
2: it is a reality and a perception. The reality is, we are witnessing the decline, and if it keeps going like this, I would change the word to the collapse of American capitalism. Yes. Mm -hmm. And the the deep perception is that an awful lot of people feel it, and I mean the word feel it. They can't put it into analytical terms, but they have a deep sense that everything is turning to shit, that the world is falling apart. Phrases like that come out of people's mouths very quickly. And I think what you're seeing is this sense that something is terribly wrong and that at this moment of sort of disintegration and crisis, that we're about to have an election in which we're going to be choosing between Trump and Biden, those things, that becomes a symptom of how bad things yeah. really yes, are. Yes.
1: Well, and you really see the desperation. I mean, it's someone like Mitch McConnell. Uh, you know, they keep using these euphemisms. Uh, Something more must be done for the economy, but by, by which they mean basically giving people unemployment checks. But, um, you know, the desperation scares me. The desperation of these characters, Donald Trump, the Mitch McConnells of the world, uh, yes, I, I see what you're saying and I agree it's it's very positive. But I also do fear, uh, for the desperation of those, those... To
0: turn into more authoritarianism. Yeah, I mean, I
1: also see, you know, uh, what's his but, name? The guy who owns everything now. Uh, the oh, uh, Amazon.
0: Amazon, Jeff Bezos. Jeff
1: Bezos owns everything. I mean, of course. So of course. But wait,
0: wait, I just, I need, because I know you're going to have to go, and Nick's, what Nick is saying brings me to this. Exactly, I love this as an ending. Do you, can you give me ten more, five more minutes? Can you give us? Sure. Okay. Because I actually need this from you as well, because I need your advice on how to address this. And this has to do with everything you just described about that there's this sense in people that things are collapsing, what Nick is saying about the desperation and the fear that we all have that we're on this precipice with the upcoming election. And as personally, I'll speak for myself as a Bernie supporter, but also just a supporter of any kind of democratic socialist ideals for years we were you know nader people were you know we're like approaching 50 so we've been out of you know since we were young and hated for and hated for it by many people by most people um just so you know we were in the same boat (laughs) (laughs) um okay so all that said what i am noticing in my weird little world that involves a lot of social media is that um there's I mean, I don't have these guys necessarily in my world, the Trumpers that are protesting the shutdown of the market, right? And I totally, I love what you were saying about that the market's not capitalism, but I'm just gonna use the word the market now. I'll have to like rewrite what I talk about now. (laughs) But um, protesting the shutdown of the market and they coincide with many in the wellness industry who think, who I suspect think of themselves as progressive or liberals or maybe even lefties or at least Democrats. And these people have taken up this no mask ideology, and that both groups are referring um, to the states that have had more forceful shutdowns because these people want to enter back into the marketplace, right? Right? I mean, I get it, like where I had to shut down my own business they're referring to states as like those communist states. And I've seen this language. <laughs> and they're and they're confused, I think, and I want to know how you speak to this about personal freedom. And a lot of the hashtags are sovereignty or sovereignty um, versus state interference. And I get very frustrated trying to talk about how in democratic socialism, we must have state interference. And that at the end of the day, but I want to hear your words say it is a blossoming of personal freedom, really, because right now, as you say, we're duped into how, thinking that we have personal freedom. And so, can you speak to that and speak to the power of the state versus personal freedom, or is that just way too long of a question to end with?
2: <laughs> well, let me try briefly, and okay. then, you know, we'll. we'll just have hang to up when you better. need to hang up. Yeah. <laughs> again, another time.
0: Okay, hang up on yourself well, mid sentence. And in the interest
2: of time, let me be blunt here. Okay,
0: with you. please.
2: Um, this attack upon the government, the, mm-hmm. the, the state is your enemy, the state is, uh, wants to take you over, the state dictates the state, the state, the state.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: This fetishization of the state as your enemy mm. has been a very successful ideological support for capitalism in the United States, which is why it's so strong. Let me explain briefly. Okay. In the United States, imagine yourself coming from the moon. You would see something that would strike you as absolutely mysterious. Here's what happens. Large numbers of people get laid off from their jobs. Their, their employer says, don't come back Monday morning. Uh, we're not going to, we don't need your job. The employer doesn't even have to give you a reason. You're fired. End of story. Or, take another example. Uh, The banker or whoever lent you the money for your home uh, comes to you and says, you haven't paid your uh, mortgage for a while, so I'm evicting you. You you, Mm -hmm. I'm throwing you out of your house. Here comes the sheriff. You're done. Here's what happens in America large numbers of people get very angry about being unemployed and get very angry about being uh, dispossessed of their homes.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But, the, but the mystery is, who do they get angry at? Mm. And the answer is the government. They actually get angry at the government. Mm-hmm. They march in front of the mayor's home, the governor's home, the senator's home. They write letters to the Congress of blah blah blah. They blame this. They blame. Here's who they don't blame: the employer who fired them. Uh-huh. They don't blame the banker who evicted them. Uh-huh. This is fantastic. The employer can kick his employees, and the employees get angry at somebody else. This is
3: fantastic.
2: Mm. How do I pull this off? Now I can kick him again, and he'll just get angrier at the politician. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. whole notion that the cause of your problem is the politician mm-hmm. is a large, clever mm-hmm. crock. Mm-hmm. Of mm-hmm. course, it has its grain of, of truth. People in authority, whatever mm-hmm. that authority is, are tempted and often... So come to the temptation to abuse their authority. Mm -hmm. Does a policeman tell you in a nasty voice to do something he didn't need to tell you that way? Of course he does. Mm -hmm. Does the clerk in the uh, post office uh, abuse you when you're buying stamps? Yeah, if he's having a bad day, he might.
3: Mm -hmm. But
2: you're just as much abused by the employer or by your banker as by anybody in the government. Where did you get off? Deciding that the great threat to your individuality to be treated properly was the government. That took a lot of ideological training. Mm
3: -hmm. Yes,
0: yes, yes. let Let
2: me give you the illustration that these days is so powerful. Okay. In those countries where there's an almost religious, and I would say this is the United States, a religious fundamentalism in economics in which Here's how it goes. Everything that the private sector does is godlike, efficient, wonderful. And everything that the government does is evil, devilish, inefficient, clumsy, authoritarian, or fill in any other negative adjective you like.
3: Mm -hmm. That's
2: how Americans think. And you know what that meant? It meant that the preparation for the COVID-19 was a disaster, here.
3: Mm-hmm. It was
2: a disaster because no private company can make money by producing test kits or ventilators or masks mm-hmm. and holding them in a warehouse an indefinite number of years until the next pandemic comes. It's too risky. There's not enough profit in it. So they don't do it. You know what you need then? You need a government to come in and say, okay. Right. For, pre- for preparing for viruses, private capitalism stinks. Yep. It sucks. It doesn't do the job because those companies that could have produced those things found alternatives that were more profitable, and they went ahead and did those. And so when the pandemic came, we didn't have the tests, and we didn't have the ventilators, and we didn't have the gloves. So the government comes in and would say, okay— This is an area where private capitalist enterprises are no good. They don't solve the problem. They don't serve public health. So we're going to come in, we the government, and we're going to compensate for the failure of private capitalism. Well, in our society, the government didn't do that. Mm
3: -hmm. And you know
2: why? Because they're captured by this fundamentalist ideology that says, if the private companies aren't doing it, well, then it doesn't need to be done.
3: Right That's on. wrong. Right.
2: And if you go to the countries where the government is given an important respect for what it can do, mm-hmm. and these are not just countries like Cuba and Vietnam. Mm-mm. By the way, Vietnam has had no deaths from mm-hmm. corona, and Cuba has had, I don't know, 10 or 20. Mm-hmm. W- much more successful. Mm-hmm. But even capitalist countries... Where the state is given respect, that's South Korea, that's New Zealand, that's Australia, Mm -hmm. that's Germany, that's France. In those countries where the government isn't the fall guy for everything, the way it is in the religious fundamentalist economics of the U.S., Mm -hmm. they were able to prepare for and cope with COVID much better than we were. We are one of the worst countries in the world because we have this crazy notion that something done by the government is wrong, bad to be avoided. Uh, Any power the government has will be abusively used against you. Meanwhile, we give the private sector uh, a pass. Most Americans depend for their lives on private employers. The abuse of authority by private employers is every bit as grotesquely authoritarian as what the government does. It's only by means of deep ideological training that Americans constantly need to tell themselves that the culprit of economic failure is the government and the bastion of economic success is the private sector. It really is simple-mindedness, but for capitalism... It's been a godsend.
1: Uh, Well, and I also, I mean, I have some sympathy uh, for that American citizen you're describing also because of that schism that we spoke about at the beginning. I mean, I think also people are confused. They don't understand that there's this split of, of, of ideologies or philosophies. So I think in those times of trouble, they sort of correctly reach for some democratic controls, which, they, which we were promised, but they don't understand that there's, there's a split there and that, 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 that those democratic people that they look to for help are not empowered to uh, do anything because of the, the ideology you're talking about, the crock that you're talking about. Uh, those same politicians are not empowered to to respond. Uh, so the levers of power are are disattached.
2: Uh, I agree, but that's our job. That, mm-hmm. is, that, that's what I got to do. Right. That's what you too have got to do. Okay. That's our job. is right. our job is to make these points, to make them effectively, to make them over and over again, to do it in, you know in written form, in video form, in podcast form in our personal conversations with the people we right. live with, work with, and all the rest. My yeah.
0: greatest regret is that I get so um, outraged when I read people saying things that I basically just say, um, you're a fucking idiot and then they block me and now I wanna post now I wanna give this pot your pot you know, everything you said to this woman who posts sovereignty and I can't reach her.
1: <laughs> but Richard, we well. know we know you have to go. That's a, it's a great place to stop, but you have to promise to come back because Absolutely.
2: I really Absolutely. think it's look important. as I said, it's our job. I mean that. I will be all we need to do is work out a schedule or a way yeah. to get together the next
1: time. Okay. I okay. think we, The only okay.
2: obstacle is my schedule, nothing else. Okay, I'm really, great.
1: really excited to hear from you an example of a democratic workplace because I really think we need to, to fight the, uh, the crazies. Yeah, good. Maybe and, maybe next
2: time we can focus yeah. on that.
1: Okay, we'll because send people, you that I email. I still hear people say, you know, like, like there is this hopeful wave, but I still hear people saying, oh, yeah, but the unions are so uh, disorganized. They're so inefficient. Well, um, let, let, let me tease
2: you. Next okay. time I'll talk to you about a corporation, in yeah. this case okay. in Spain, that, that is basically a collection of worker co-ops and how successful they have become what their history is over the last uh, 70 years that they've been in existence. Great. Okay. Um, they are now the seventh largest corporation in all of Spain, uh, and they are 100% worker co-op, and I will explain all great, that. Great, They are a democratic, organized business, very okay. successful. Okay, I right.
0: really look forward to that, and I have one last now, question before, that's-
2: Before yeah. I hang up, yeah. tell me, what, what, what form are you going to put what we've just okay. done into?
0: This is a podcast, and I'm going to send Tess the link and you, but I'll I'll, she'll, I'll make sure she knows about it. And it's a podcast that we, that our venue is, that, is this, I guess, company called Patreon. So people, we're going to make it free. Yep, yep. But, oh, yeah, yeah. We,
2: we, we work with Patreon all the time. Okay, great. The reason I'm asking yeah, is please yeah. send us a link um, because Absolutely. we will post it on our websites. We will promote great. it. Great, and that oh, will bring you that will bring you attention, but it also lets our uh, audiences see what you've done.
0: Great, you so and much. I have one last easy to answer question before you hang up. Will you be my daddy? <laughs>
2: yes, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you.
0: I love All you. All right,
2: nice to talk to you, and nice to meet you. And I'll tell Tess we had a great time.
0: Thank All you right. so much. That's my the most important thing to report back to Tess.
2: All right, we'll do. <laughs>
0: okay, bye. Take, Take care. care. Okay, kiddos, I thoroughly enjoyed that. I hope you did too. I mean, enjoy isn't the right word, it's intense. And I feel very angry and irate a lot of the time about it all, but somewhat hopeful. So we've made our last, like, I think this is our fourth episode that's had no paywall. And if you enjoyed it and you wanna support us, our little small business here at home, please go to Patreon. And become a patron, which is pay anything you want—not per episode, but for a monthly subscription. It auto-deducts from your card every month, whatever you want—a dollar to ten thousand dollars.
1: And then folks will get a notification when we post new episodes.
0: Yep, and you can cancel it anytime. It's super easy. I myself have canceled my own subscriptions to certain yeah. Patreon podcasts. Yes, yeah, and then I mean, re- and then given money again because I realized I wanted to hear it again.
1: And if any if anything hot and sexy comes up, we're gonna put it behind the paywall.
0: Oh yeah, when I talk to uh, Colin Farrell about we're actually
1: naked right now.
0: Yeah, we are. And d- did we were the,
1: probably the first people to ever interview uh, Richard, Richard D. Wolf, in the nude. Rick,
0: sweet Rick,
3: nude.
1: But we're gonna keep it unlocked anyway, since we didn't talk earlier about being nude.
3: That is true.